Hey everybody, I'm Alex and this is Lunchbox Radio. Now, before we get started, I've noticed that there's been a significant drop in the podcast and that usually is due to my wanting to do something that the audience really isn't there for anymore. And so I'll be changing some of the stuff about the podcast, mainly making it a little shorter, making it a little tighter, maybe doing some editing because... If you guys have heard the um, Uncanny Curve podcast, you know that I actually do do audio editing. I just haven't done it for this because I want it to be a little bit more off the cuff. But I also know that I'm a lot. And sometimes my good points can be drowned out by the sheer amount of like almost Obama-esque pausing that I can do. Not to mention that I like full-on ADD... Not that I have ADD, but it it feels similar. Um, jump from point to point and like forget about a point and come back around to it eventually. Um, so I will be focusing on making these episodes, these main episodes, a little bit tighter. Um, the I want to keep these Sunday editions more stream of conscious, mostly because I keep them shorter, usually under thirty minutes. Um, and I don't, and I think that some of my points will be lost if I don't keep that that way. And also, it lets me just like spill my brain out, which is which is a useful thing for me, and I think a useful thing for you, the listener slash watcher. So, on that note, let's get to what we're talking about this time, and that is a little show called Maggie. For those of you who are familiar with the <laughs> works of Disney, um, one of the biggest Disney movies that came out was a movie called Aladdin. And Aladdin, like a lot of Disney, like a lot of Disney Renaissance movies, took a um, 
folktale, took an Arabian folktale, and kind of firmed it up into a Disney vision. This is true, actually, most glaringly of which in um, Kimba the, in the case of Kimba the White Lion versus The Lion King. Those movies are basically the same. But one was produced by a Japanese studio in Japan, and one was produced by Disney, and Disney released it after Kimber the White Lion came out, but because it was Disney, it had a bigger megaphone and a bigger distribution network, so it is more well-known, at least in America, than Kimba, which is considered to be the original adaptation of that story, basically. And so, what happens... I'm going to take you on a little ride through um, art history... I'm going to say Art History 3, um, because what happens in Art History is you learn about all of these folktales, because lots of them are immortalized in either, you know, like, paintings or sculptures or stuff from, created from time past. And I went to art school, so when you go to art school, the cross you have to bear is you have to suffer through um, international liter a version of international literature and art history. And... If the class, if those two classes are done right in the academic part of your art, of your art school career, they line up somewhat. So when you're reading the Bhagavad Gita, you are actually learning about Indian art, <laughs> about Indian art history, and Indian history, and not so much in art history one or two, were was the experience of, oh, this is just a Disney movie that they, like, made. But the experience of Art History 3 was very much, like, up uh, 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 Is this... Uh, and I don't think that this is a Disney movie. Actually, I know it's a Disney movie. Is this just Road to El Dorado? Like, do, uh, is this just Road to El Dorado, yo? Because that seems... That seems suspect, and, like, Disney need to pay... I don't know who Disney need to pay, but they need to pay somebody. But the, the downside and the challenge of, do, of doing something in a universe that Disney has touched is you need to escape Disney, but also you need to do things that people expect out because they're familiar with the Disney works. I actually just watched a um, part of Aladdin to get the um, You've Never Had Friends Like Me verse about Alibaba out of my head because I watched... I've kind of shotgunned all of Maggie. Part of it I've seen. Most of it I hadn't. Because I dropped off of it a while ago. But. They say the name Alibaba so many times in that show. That I every time his name came up. I started just muttering. Alibaba had them 40 thieves. And it was just. It was. It was not great. So I like watched part of that movie. And I was kind of reminded. How much. You know, your idea of Aladdin is probably from not the traditional story or folktale. It's probably from the Disney movie. Same thing is true of Alice in Wonderland. And Alice in Wonderland had a whole... Because the book was much more, like... Was much more lurid and much more strange. It's had a whole lot more adaptations. And it's had a whole lot more, like, cultural... 
it seeped into the culture so much more. I mean, the whole section of the whole like Alice in Wonderland is related in some ways to the Matrix kind of thing. But my point is, is that when you're making something that has a lot to do with something that's been made before that is super famous, like Aladdin, you gotta be really specific about the ways you break away and the ways you choose not to. And up until a certain point, up until very, up until pretty late in the two seasons of Maggie that are out now, um, Maggie's kind of this masterclass of world building and a masterclass of something that you don't expect when you're watching anime, but in Maggie, I noticed it when it wasn't there. And that was this absence of Japanese culture shoved in to a world where it wouldn't necessarily exist. What I mean by that is, um, in, it, let's, let's, let's involve ourselves with the Pokemon Jelly Donut scenario for a second. In Pokemon, one of the kind of genius things about Pokemon, one of the reasons why Pokemon was so successful, and one of the reasons why so many early anime hits were so successful, is there was not a whole lot that identified them as Japanese. In Pokemon, the, one of the big first things that identifies Pokemon as Japanese, if you don't know a whole lot about Japanese culture and you're a dumbass kid, is actually the rice balls. And that's one of the reasons why it was such a <laughs> translation crime to just be like, those are jelly donuts now. We, we don't want to explain this to kids. And what that means is as you get more knowledge about Japanese culture, through anime, through just being interested in Japanese culture, you begin to recognize more in Pokemon that is definitively Japanese, even the first season. And right down to the, um, to the first season, uh, to the first, like, set of, I to first location being called, I believe, Kanto. Um, or actually being called, um, Kanto, and I don't know where that's supposed to be model after, but Johto is very much supposed to be welcome to Japan. <laughs> but the bad the bad side of that scenario of like little pieces of Japanese culture kind of sliding through the cracks into other thing is when you're watching an anime and everybody like bows and people hand business cards in specific ways and people act in specific, very Japanese-centric ways where maybe they shouldn't. And I can't really put a finger on a very specific um, example, but if you think about it, you'll probably notice, like, oh, this... So, the perfect example. When you look at a show like Black Heaven, which I probably won't ever talk about because Black Heaven is wild, but, like, just wild. You see these moments where it's like, oh, these people clearly don't know what black people are. <laughs> like, this, like whoever animated this had a very piss-poor um, understanding of blackness and black characters and that kind of stuff. And it doesn't... It doesn't... Like, there are depictions of a black character in that show don't 
feel right. In the same way that lots of people, that lots of anime depiction of America feel slightly off. One of my favorite stories that James Gunn has ever said about directing anything is this story where he worked with, where he was the director for Suda 51's uh, Lollipop Chainsaw on the Xbox 360. The reason why they chose him to direct that is because he's an American director and that game is supposed to take place in an American high school. And he said, he said, like, I sat in a meeting with Suda and I was just like, no, man, you can't attach a whole theme park with a Ferris wheel to the side of a school. That's not how high schools work. Even nice high schools don't have that shit. And at the time, he was right. Now there's, like, college campuses with, like, weird lazy rivers and shit because the world is insane. But it, there's just some interpretations of, and we do, and we as a culture do it as well, some interpretations of other cultures from the outside that feel just inherently wrong and inherently just off base. And a lot of that happens by a culture injecting itself into another culture just to make it feel more readable to them when it really shouldn't have to. And one of the kind of triumphs of um, of Maggie is that it lets that kind of like Arabian, Middle East, like early century Middle Eastern culture be itself. And it lets like the characters be the characters but the, the, some key things they jump right over because they don't want to have the conversation because they don't want to have the conversation because they'll know that they know they'll screw the conversation up if they don't um if they don't if they try and make a direct comparison and one of those conversations they have is about slavery and about the erasure of a culture through the use of slavery and um i forget the the term for the character but um you're introduced to the concept of slavery and the concept of an entire of, of essentially an entire people who were enslaved for the most part or believed to be enslaved um in the idea of um in the character Morgiana who's introduced in like the very early episodes as this slave as a slave from a race of people who is who comes from what they call the dark continent which is like a very specific nod at a very specific I believe I forget what the name of the book is called but it's like a very super racist book about black people in Africa and these um these characters are supposed to be are depicted as being extremely physically strong with red hair and red eyes. Um, it's similar to what they do with the Ishba with the Ishvalans almost, but um, except the strength aspect, and they're like freakishly superhumanly strong, typically. And Morgiana develops this like hatred towards the concept of slavery and of enslavement and of even like servitude, really. She, but she has this like ingrained want to be useful to people as well. So it's this real core conflict in that character that's really interesting. And when you go down the line and you start meeting other characters who are from 
her, like, who are, have the same racial background as her, they get to have this conversation of like, oh, yep, yeah, if, they, if they were here, they were slaves. And it's like, the reason they're not slaves anymore is because they were free, they were specifically freed from slavery by someone else. There is no, there is no mechanism in this story yet for one of those characters to be a free person just and land on the shore. And the result of that is that they get to have this really meaningful conversation about slavery and about what, you know, like people just out of slavery look like and how they behave and how they interact not only with not only with the colonizers, but also the other people who were slaves, the other characters who are of the same racial background as them and were slaves. But they also get to not have to engage with, oh, these are all black people, bad anime depictions of black people. It's really interesting. And then, and I know the internet will come after me for this on some reason, but it's really true. We get into the, like, magic system arc of, um, of the, like, kind of Harry Potter thing. They basically, at some point, for the last season of this, for the last arc of this, of the two seasons that are out, said, we want to have a Harry Potter treatment. And the way they treat it is less like Harry Potter and more like we want to have a conversation about a essentially religious state. Think something like um, Israel. And they have, I mean, they have an Iron Dome stand-in, for God's sakes, in this show. Seriously. And they have, but because they substitute out Jews for wizards, they get to have that conversation without stepping in the, like, oh, this is, this is, like, we're criticizing Israel. And, um, I just watched a a YouTube video, which I remembered the guy's name, um, on Futurama and the kind of way that Futurama got away with its political ideas, with political, um, plot and political, like, um, opinions that it put in the show that were very clearly, like, that show is very liberal and it, like, wants you to know it and it, like, has conversations about sustainability and about equal rights and, like, all this other stuff, but because it's done so over the top and in a sci-fi fantasy comedy cartoon, they get to say, like, oh, this is just framing a framing device for the episode in a far far away place that never existed. And Maggie benefits from that, too. So what you have here is you have a... And this is all done by A1 Pictures, I should point out. And the reason why I point that out is because they very clearly made efforts to, like, not... They have characters who are stand-ins for, like, the China... For, for China and for East Asia, but they don't... They really try and have a restrained respect for create for emulating 
a culture that they are very that's very clear is not their own. Um, and one so before I move on here, I want to talk about Pixar's research proce- process for Ratatouille. One of the things that Pixar did for Ratatouille that was ingenious is they organized Vespa tours for every animator, which means that an animator got on the back of a Vespa with a tour guide, usually somebody who's a Parisian citizen, and they took them all around Paris on a Vespa so they could get like down alleys and like into nooks and crannies of the city, which they really needed because they needed to create a like rat level view of Paris and of France in particular. And you can't really do that if you can't go down like an alley or you can't go down like a thinner street. And that gave that team a really unique view of Paris that they could then incorporate into that movie. And you feel that kind of like love of the city in the movie Ratatouille. And if I had to liken this to something, I would say, liken Maggie to something. I would say it's that, the like level world building and Maggie to something. I would say it's that. When you encounter Balbod, or you encounter Sindria, or you encounter, um, you encounter any of the cities that they visit, they feel lived in, they feel authentic, they feel like ancient Arabian cities, in the same way that the city that, um, Agrabah feels in Aladdin. And I've been to, um, North Africa, I've been to Fez, I've been to Marrakesh. And when you go to Fez for the first time, you have this understanding of what the Medina is. And all of a sudden, the first musical number of Aladdin makes sense to you in a real way. Because he runs through what is essentially a big maze of a city that is the Medina, the like low-lying Medina of a... African of like a North African city in the form of Agrabah and these um the episodes that you spend in say Balbad or Sindria or something like that they have that feel when you're in Sindria and you spend and they're spending most of their time in like royal palaces and in spaces that are made for the richest of the rich it feels like that. It feels like you're in this lush green space that does not necessarily extend farther out than the palace in Sindria. When you're in Balbad and you're in the back streets of Balbad, that's what that feels like. It feels like you're in a cramped space. It feels like you look up and you don't see sky for days. And that is all really important And what this show ends up being about is it ends up being about the kind of pointlessness of conflict and the kind of... the way that conflict can be about nothing and the way that you should really stop conflict is not by killing a specific person. It's by just stopping. Just stopping. Just... There are very few shows that... And don't get me wrong, this is a shonen action show... And you get shown in action scenes, absolutely. But it does it with more heart and more caring and more understanding that, like, 
all of the other things have been tried before Aladdin casts a spell or before Aladdin has Ugo, who I'll get to Ugo and the genies um, in a second, but before Aladdin has Ugo intervene. And it has this real... There are very few... So if you look at something like Gundam, and I, I, what I was going to say is there are very few... Um, Cartoon, cartoons, period, but def, but certainly anime included in that, that preach a anti-violence message and then don't somehow defang it by not trying everything else first. So if you look at Gundam, um, the, the entirety of Gundam, actually, it, that whole show, maybe with the exception of um, G Gundam, which is always the exception, um, it's very much just war bad, war bad. And then for most of the show, they make some pokes and prods at like attempting like negotiations and peace and peaceful negotiations and peaceful resolution. But it, at the end of the day, it's a giant robot show. So, you know, it's going to end up in a big old robot battle in space. That's just how it goes. Even something like Gundam 00. They're like, war, we're making war illegal universally, and we're going to do that by murdering some motherfuckers. And that doesn't, that doesn't sit the same as a character who is a child, who is a child. And they make it very clear that he is a child. Being dropped into the middle of a conflict establishing a relationship with both sides of the conflict and then going to the side that's the aggressor and saying like they know that you know peacefully negotiating with you and like n not surrendering but joining the um co-empire which is the name of the co-empire the name of the um chinese the china stand-in is the best option so you need to not kill them right now that needs to be what ha what happens with you. And then you realize that it's taken out of his hands. The thing that happens is not... Does not happen because he instigates it. It happens in spite of him doing everything he can to stop, to stop the conflict. The conflict it, it almost grows limbs of its own because of the... Um, uh, of... Uh, of Al Salman, the um, bat, the ostensive black-robed evil bad guys of this show, wanting to cause conflict for the sake of conflict, so hopelessness takes over and they can like invite a big evil tentacle monster down from the sky, basically. And the result of that is that whenever you meet a character, as soon as you meet the character, they, um, they can instantly be humanized. They can instantly be seen as, oh, this is a human person. And it's like, we need to have negotiations with these people. Even the most despicable characters in this show are seen as, like, this person is a product of this, like, hopeless scenario in which 
conflict has always existed and conflict will always exist. In fact, the one most like nefarious feeling character in all of Maggie is not a bad guy. It's Sinbad. Sinbad as a character is this like though this this show does something that shows rarely do successfully because it, you want your main character to feel like they're the driving force. But in this show, in a very like Arabian Nights tale feeling way, the main character is but a guide. Aladdin is supposed to be a, what they call Maggie. And Maggie's are supposed to choose kings. Meaning they're supposed to find someone, lead them to a dungeon, so they can get a metal vessel, which is what they call the, like, a metal object that contains a, what we know to be a genie, but they call a djinn because they say genie, and you see a big blue guy, you're like, why isn't that Robin Williams? Or you say, oh, thank God it's not Will Smith. <laughs> but his king's candidate is a guy who I haven't mentioned once yet, other than the Alibaba had them 40 thieves lyric from Aladdin from the from the Disney's Aladdin is Alibaba Fallujah I think his name is Alibaba Fallujah and Alibaba is the third prince of Balbad who was born from who was born from a prostitute and a king and here I want to call something out oftentimes in shows they try to just as a matter of censorship, they try to veer away from, even in anime, where there's, where oftentimes they'll just accept the light bars. And this show definitely suffered from light bars, because, and we'll get to why. Um, they'll try and obscure things like characters who are sex workers, characters who are, like, out and stuff like that. There are, of course, exceptions. Tons of exceptions. Um, Gangsta. Al the character of Alex from Gangsta is just a prostitute. And not a very high-ranking one at that. Um, there's tons of characters like that. But they usually play it for laughs or play it as tragic. Whereas in... Um, as in Maggie, when um, you hear Alibaba's um, backstory, which happens, I think, in the Balbad arc, which is, I think, the third arc of that show. Um, it, he, he, he says it like you would say something as if it was fact, because it is. There's no, there's very little casting of sadness and of grief of, like, my... He just says, like, my mom was a prostitute. <laughs> and we were very happy for a time. And then we weren't happy because she vanished slash died. And they save that for a different character. For a character where it makes more sense because they want to make, they want to make him sympathetic so he can be a turning point for Alibaba. And so Alibaba is kind of the driving force of this show. He does, um, by the third arc, he's doing most of the moving forward, whereas Aladdin is in the background and you're working up to a 
different... He's working up to a different thing. And a lot of the main character of Aladdin, who really does feel like the main character in the show, he had the most going on for him. It's largely absent from the show. He, he, he is like... He is less a... He is less a... Main character... And more a main force of nature, so to speak. And that makes the show a lot more interesting because you have these characters who are allowed to be like the Dragon Ball Z, screaming at the top of their lungs, shonen characters. But you also have this character very clearly the heart of the show, the thing the show wants you to focus on. And when you spend time with him, you actually get the most out of him compared to something that feels more stereotypical like Alibaba or um really Alibaba is the like the character show pitches is like oh this is the main shonen protagonist like here he is we, we, we need him in the show here he is blonde cool fire dagger ready to go and but what that means is you have this opportunity for characters like Sinbad who is they drop huge hints of Sinbad is very clearly a very compromised character. He is very clearly a conqueror, a colonizer, a a a well-intentioned a well-intentioned but ultimately sometimes bad guy. And they hint it with like conversation between him and his um, confidant Jafar who's, like, not the Jafar you're thinking of. He wears a lot of green. He's got white hair. Not the Jafar. This is not the Jafar you're thinking about. But because of that, like, Aladdin becomes this, A, kind of walking font of knowledge at some point, but B, he becomes, some, he becomes someone that everyone's interested in, but someone that people don't never know that they should feel wary of until about, until really the last season when he straight up is just like, I'm magic god now. Come at me, man. <laughs> I, I'm determined to not let people die, so I'm just gonna keep washing you out with sand waves to the shore. Uh, and he sent this to the Fonali Corps, which is the name of the race that was entirely and almost entirely enslaved to most people's knowledge in this show's world and this kind of commitment to this a the show's a commitment to peaceful conflict resolution and the show's willingness not to completely undercut it feels really authentic and feels really intelligent and it's not that they don't that there's no consequences to them um not cho choosing not to fight um a, a kind of like fortune teller old wise woman character who's important to Aladdin dies in the second arc of the show because 
the show, the like that arc can't let the hate go, and there would not, and there would literally nothing Aladdin could have done, and so there are consequences to the like the attempt at peaceful resolution, but there's no like. Well, you gotta kill this guy. Like, this guy's the problem. You gotta kill him. And they find a way around it by making a big, inhuman nightmare of a character that is, like, the bringer of doom that shows up in the... as the ultimate finale to season two. But it's very clear that after that happens, A, Al Farman, the bad guys in the show, are just gonna try again. B... As soon as, like, the main bad guy threat is out of the way, you have kind of the leaders of all the nations, with the exception of the, um, of the Harry Potter school country, there and, like, like, all decked out in their magic armor and they just all look at each other like, okay, now we can start killing each other and see who becomes king, right? And everybody else is like, you... You dumbass. Like, all their, like, second-in-commands are like, you dumbasses. That's not what this was about. In fact, that's what got us here in the first place. What is wrong with you assholes? And the king of the, like, ruler, the de facto ruler of the co-empire is immediately like, well, that little blue kid promised me knowledge, so whoop, I'm taking him for a couple months. We're going to have a nice long chat. Then the show just kind of ends. And if I had a big complaint about the show, I mean, I'm not saying it's like a perfect 10 out of 10. There is a lot of lurid, like, there's a lot of, like, lurid, like, young young guys in a brothel scenario. And a lot of, like, there's a lot of that stuff. And the romance stuff is half-hearted. I would say once they got locked on to the, like, we gotta beat up Al Farman's, like, homunculus as it comes out of the sky kind of thing, they forgot about all of these other threads that they had been, that they had pulled on along the way. Like, they forgot about Hakuryu and making Hakuryu evil, and making Hakuryu evil seemed totally illogical and totally like against the logic the internal logic of the character at the time so there are story issues with it but overall it's impressive because it honors the culture it's trying to depict by not filling in the gaps by making it seem like instead of filling in the gaps with just this is what would happen in Japan to actually going out and doing some research and being like, what would happen at a big city-wide Arabian party in, like, the year 162? Or what would happen? How would this go? Or what would this look like? Or let's go watch all the Harry Potter movies. <laughs> um, which is generally how I think they um, handled the, like, magic school arc thing. But that gives it a more authentic feel than just, oh, everybody bows to say goodbye. I think I counted once when they bowed, and I think that felt even somatically oddly appropriate. 
but the and and I know that Maggie was extremely popular when it came out, but it also it's had had some time to sit. It's had some time of being a Netflix hostage, and it it feels. It feels like it drifted out of the consciousness a little bit, and it feels like it is still as good as it always was. It's just it's been around for long enough where people have put it on the pile of like, oh, good show, put it on the pile. I wanted to highlight it with this episode because I think it's genuinely interesting and genuinely a lot of fun. So, on that note, if you like this episode, new episodes of lunchbox radio come out i haven't been putting them out in video though i've been recording them in video because i haven't felt as confident about the video performance so i'm evaluating what i want to do there but new episodes always come out wherever you get your podcast every thursday and sunday thursday is about a show like this and sunday is usually about something contextual something more interesting um, I'm gonna do this Sunday about um, why you should support big companies who are known for supporting independent animation because of a, a piece of independent animation that I saw on Disney called 20 something that was quite frankly incredible um, on Disney Plus rather but on that note I have been Alex this has been Lunchbox Radio and I will talk to you on Sunday.